Turn, if you will, to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. I have a a good friend I've known since uh, student days who's a Presbyterian pastor over on the West Coast, and he has what today is called bipolar syndrome, or uh, he's manic depressive. The, the alternations in his moods are very severe. The slope's very steep. He gets very, very depressed and then highly elated and then very much depressed. This began during his college days. And it appears that he's not ever going to be healed, at least not uh, completely healed. He's on medication, and that helps to flatten out his mood curves, but they're still pretty extreme. He's in the process of writing a book, and uh, he just came through here a couple of days ago, and we had some time to, to talk uh, about his, uh, his condition. And uh, it's from Fred that I picked up the analogy that I used in my column yesterday about the merry-go-round. Uh, it was very helpful to me. He said that his Christian life is like one of these uh, merry-go-rounds on a playground that we all used to play around with. You, know, you grab hold of the bar and you run around the outside and you get the thing moving and then you jump on the platform and you try to hang on for dear life. And it's uh, just a fact of physics that the closer you are to the center, the easier it is to hang on. Uh, as all of you know, the best way to stay on one of those uh, gadgets is to, is to work your way along the along the, hand, the, the bars into the middle so you so the centrifugal force won't throw you off of the uh, off of the merry-go-round and he said his whole life has been like that when he gets into one of these depressive moods he just has to work his way into the center and the center for him is God and one psalm that has helped him more than any others is Psalm 103 which I found has been very helpful for me uh, I'm not manic depressive but all of us have mood shifts and uh, changes and I find at times when I uh, don't feel very good about myself or I have the blahs or I don't think God really cares or is interested in me and the heavens seem to be brass that this is a psalm which uh, helps me to center my life upon God and helps me to hang on now let's uh, let's look at it Psalm 103 uh, this is a companion psalm to 104 both begin and close with the same line, Praise the Lord, O my soul. They, they belong together. Psalm 104 is a psalm about outer space. It's a description of uh, God's creative handiwork in nature. Psalm 103 is a psalm about, uh, song about inner space. It talks about the benefits of our salvation, what God has done for us in the inner man and in the inner woman. Uh, according to the inscription, it's uh, a psalm of, of David. The uh, poet, uh, shepherd, king of Judah, a man whom a friend of mine described once as uh, a man who had the artistry of a Shakespeare, the uh, soul of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and the hand-eye coordination of Johnny Bench. And I thought that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, description of this man we call David. Uh, for myself, I think I think David was damaged in his childhood. I think he was driving a wrecked vehicle all of his life. He was what we would call today an abused child. If not abused physically, he was almost certainly abused emotionally. And it's my, uh, it's my conviction that David was an illegitimate child. That's why uh, his, his genealogy is, is so knotted and, and difficult to unravel as you read through Chronicles and other places where his genealogy is given. You're not quite sure who his relatives are. I think David was born out of wedlock, and he was an embarrassment to Jesse and the family. And that's why he was left in the field when Samuel came to look over the sons of Jesse and, and anoint the king. 
when uh, he, he, after he had uh, spent some time with all of David's brothers, he said, isn't there another one? And Jesse says, well, there's the little one. And he uses a very derogatory term to refer to him. I think he grew up uh, unloved, unwanted, uh, pushed out of the family, and that sort of thing does a great deal of damage to our personalities. And David paid for it, I think, all of his life. He, he had a very difficult time accepting himself. And this psalm reflects his solution to the problem of uh, his own identity in, in God. Now he begins with what I think is the theme of the psalm, two verses that also set the, uh, set the tone of the psalm. Verse 1, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now you notice that David is talking to himself. He's speaking to his soul. Now if you talk to yourself too much, somebody will come, come around in a padded wagon and they'll carry you off. That's not the sort of thing that, uh, that is socially acceptable, except there's sometimes when it's, it's, it's good to talk to yourself. It's even good to answer yourself and talk back. Uh, and what David is doing here is preaching to himself. It's a monologue with his soul. He does that frequently. In Psalm 42 and 43, evidently David was depressed, and he, he says to himself, Hey, soul, uh, are you there? Listen, listen up, soul. Uh, why are you cast down? Why are you so disquieted? Hope in God. And uh, he, had, he, he preaches a, a little sermon to his soul about God's faithfulness and directs uh, himself to, to worship God. Now, that's what D David is doing here. He's saying, all right, soul, listen to what I have to say. Praise the Lord. It's a command. Now, the phrase, praise the Lord, is not the, uh, at least as it occurs here, it's not the term that's normally translated praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, you probably didn't know it, but you know some Hebrew. Hallelujah is Hebrew. Hallelujah is just an imperative form of the verb that means to praise. You, plural, praise, and Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh. Praise Yah, hallelujah. But that's not the, the phrase that's found here. The word that's translated praise in this particular context comes from the Hebrew word for knee, and it means to kneel down or to worship. In Psalm 95, 6, uh, David says, uh, Bow down and worship before God. Kneel before the Lord our Maker. We sing a song that's based on that, on that song. Well, the verb that's translated kneel is the word that's found here. Translated praise. It means to kneel down. So what he's saying is soul worship the Lord. All my innermost being praise his holy name. Uh, the, the Hebrews, as, as you know, did not rhyme sounds. They didn't use assonance in their poetry. They rhymed ideas. And uh, David repeats the same idea twice. Kneel before the Lord, O soul. Uh, bow down before him, all my innermost being. Praise his holy name. What David is doing here is commanding his soul to worship God in, in spirit, which is where worship has to take place, ultimately. Uh, you don't need a, a, a large auditorium sanctuary, as we call it, with stained glass windows and robed choirs and professional clergy to worship the, to worship the Lord. 
You can worship him in the sanctuary of your, of your being, in your heart. In fact, that's where God wants you to worship him. It's good for us to gather corporately here and, and worship together, sing these hymns and, and reflect upon the Lord and who he is and, and, and direct our devotion and our adoration toward him. But uh, it's good also to worship him in the sanctuary of your heart, in the quietness of your own bedroom or out in the backyard or under a tree someplace or wherever you happen to find yourself. That's what Jesus meant when he said to the woman at the well, God is seeking people to worship him in spirit, that is, in the inner man, and in truth, that is, in reality. Because her question was, you know, should we worship God here in this temple on Mount Gerizim or down there in Jerusalem where you Jews worship? And Jesus said, in effect, it doesn't matter where you worship, you can worship here or there. What, what matters is the attitude of the heart. Are you worshiping him in the inner man and in reality? These temples are simply symbols of a greater reality, which is God's desire to indwell the human heart. And it's in the, in the human heart that, that we worship him. That's where real worship takes place. Praise his holy name, he says. As Jesus says in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. That's where we begin when we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, that word hallowed is confusing to people. Uh, we, don't, we don't know what that means. I, I heard a story once about a little boy who came home and told his mother he'd learned God's name at Sunday school. And, and his mother said, what's his name? And he said, Howard. <laughs> because Jesus told us to pray, our Father who, uh, who art in heaven, Howard, be your name. <laughs> and uh, he missed the point. Sometimes we miss the point. Uh, his name isn't Howard. And... Uh, Hallowed simply means to, to set, set something apart or to make it special, make it something unique, distinctive. And that's what David says to do. That's where we begin, in the inner person, to center our lives around God and worship him and worship who he is. That's what his name signifies. It's not merely a, he's not referring to a, the need for a repetition of his name but rather reminding ourselves of who he is, what his name represents. Uh, when you give me the name of Paul McLaughlin, it, it has meaning to me because I know who Paul McLaughlin is. His name signifies his person. same is true of God. When, when we hear his name, it ought to signify who he is. And that's what worship is. It's, it's reminding ourselves of who, who the Lord is and centering our thoughts upon him. Now, uh, David goes on to tell us where to begin, how we go about uh, transacting worship, how, how we affect worship. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my innermost being, praise his holy name, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know, the problem with you and me is that we forget to remember. Uh, as, as C.S. Lewis says, the, the air gets thick in Narnia, and we get fogged, in our minds, and we start thinking that what we see and touch and taste is what's, what matters, and it's how many uh, possessions we have and how much money we have and what sort of homes and clothing and, and cars and all those things, and those become our tangible assets. But see, our minds are, are fogged. We forget that the greater benefits of life come from God. That's why Paul says, remember all of his benefits. Literally, what he says is don't forget God's camels. 
Hebrew is a remarkable language. It's just full of word pictures, subtle nuances that we often miss in translation. But literally the word is, don't forget God's camels. The Hebrew word is gamul, from which we get our word camel. When when camels were first traded to the west, the name came along with them, and this funny-looking horse that looks like it was put together by a committee uh, didn't have a name in the Western world, and so they called it a gamul, and pretty soon it came over into, into English and you know, all Indo-European languages as camel or something. It sounds like that. But it's very significant that he says that because to a Jew reading this, uh, they would immediately know what David was talking about, and all of these of the cultural associations behind this this word would come into, in the, into their thinking because a camel was a, was a unit of value. You know, when you men transact business and you, uh, you make money, you come back and your wife says, well, how, how did things work out? Oh, I made a lot of money out of that deal. Well, when a Semite or an Israelite came back home, his wife would say, well, how would you do? He'd say, well, I made a lot of camels out of that deal. Because a camel uh, indicated the, uh, the, uh, the tangible results of some sort of transaction. They, they still operate that way today. When a number of years ago, Carolyn and I and our uh, our boys were in Jordan, and we went down to the uh, old Nabataean capital of Petra, and were poking around in the ruins down there, and there were a bunch of Arabs sitting around a fire. And one of our sons, I won't tell you which one, wandered over to where these Arabs were sitting and struck up a conversation, and they could all speak English. And uh, he must have charmed them, because a little bit later, Carolyn and I walked over, and one of the Arabs said... Uh, how many uh, camels do you want for that boy? <laughs> and Carolyn said, oh, so there aren't enough camels in the world to buy that boy. And our son, who will remain nameless, looked at the Arab and said, how many camels do you take for them? <laughs> <laughs> that actually happened, and it just indicates that uh, the Eastern world still thinks in terms of camels. You have a lot of camels, you've made a good deal. That's exactly what David is saying. Don't forget all the camels you get. Don't forget what you get out of the salvation deal that that God worked on your behalf. Now, he itemizes those benefits in the verses that that follow. And it's interesting, I think, to listen to to us pray and uh, take note of the things for which we thank God. We thank God that we were born in America, and we thank God that we have physical health and and uh, that it, we thank God for the weather. But uh, David doesn't think of any of those things when he thinks of the benefits that accrue as a result of his salvation. Note, note what he is most thankful for. He forgives all your sins. Now, my translation says my sins because the translators recognize that David, while he does say your, is addressing his soul. He's still talking to himself. He says, all right, soul, buck up. What are you doing under the circumstances? What are you doing under the pile? Remember, all your benefits. He forgives all your sins. All your sins. Now David was a... David had a lot of of problems, as we know. He sinned a lot. He was a murderer. He was a liar. He was a very violent man. He was an adulterer. And it was just good to remind himself 
that God doesn't uh, keep accounts. He doesn't have a ledger book up there in which he keeps track of all of our sins. In another place, he says, if God kept an accounting of all of our sins, who could stand? But he doesn't. One of the interesting things about this series of benefits, which he itemizes for us, is, is that in each case he uses a particular grammatical form that puts the emphasis more on who God is than what he does. And it could be translated, he's the forgiver of all of his sin, of all of, our, of your sins, with reference to the, to the soul. Now, isn't that good to know? And no matter what you may have done this week or ten years ago, the abortion in your past, the the bad decision, business decision that you made that, that created so much uh, distress in your family or the marriage you may have broken up because of your unfaithfulness. He forgives all of your sins, all of them. He is the forgiver. And secondly, he is the healer of all your diseases. The word that's translated diseases here literally means sicknesses, but he's not talking about physical sickness because he's addressing the soul and the soul doesn't get physically ill. He's talking about the sicknesses of the soul, the loneliness, the drabness, the boredom, the uh, despair, the feelings of emptiness, the lack of purpose and meaning in life, the guilt, the doubt. Those are all afflictions of the soul. Now, some of those things, of course, are, are somatic in their origin. They, they, they have physical causes, but uh, those that, that are not caused Physically, those that are caused by sin in the past or by uh, circumstances that have been unfavorable, the way people treated you, the rejection that you en- endured, God heals them. Not, not immediately. We didn't get the way we are overnight. It, you know, it may have taken 40 years to damage you to the extent that you're damaged today. Nor will you be healed overnight, but he, he's the healer. He's the one who begins to set things right in your soul and take away the emptiness and the, and the pain and the, the longing and the, and the hunger for, uh, for satisfaction. He's the forgiver of all of your sins. He's the healer of all of the diseases of your soul. He redeems your life from the pit. The word for pit is the word for grave. And here's a clear, very clear Old Testament promise of resurrection from the dead. A lot of people think that the Old Testament does not say anything about the resurrection from the dead, that that's a, that's a New Testament concept that came in with Jesus and the apostles. And uh, you, you could tell because the Sadducees, for example, didn't believe in a resurrection. But that's not true. The, uh, the Old Testament uh, prophets speak about death and resurrection in the same way in which funeral directors do today. They, they tend to use euphemisms and symbolisms rather than speaking very directly about it. And many people reading the Old Testament don't realize that the Old Testament is very clear. There is life after death. There is a resurrection from the dead. There is an exalted, an exalted state afterward. And here's one clear statement. He redeems your life from the grave. That's the same word that's used in Psalm 16 when Jesus says of Messiah, God will not permit his soul to see corruption or the Holy One to see the grave. He redeems your life from death. That's what he's saying. And redemption in the Old Testament is often used as God's act with, with respect to buying us out of, of, of death, buying us back and giving us life. For, for example, in Job, Job 19. 
Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though my flesh may fail, I'll go into the, in my, in, in the end, I will, I will stand before him, he says, in spirit. He's my Redeemer. He buys me back from the grave. Uh, turn, for example, to Psalm 49, where you have a similar idea expressed. He contrasts uh, his own final state with those who do not know God. He says in verse 14, Like sheep, they're destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Morning is a symbolic way of referring to a resurrection. Very apt. Just as you wake up from sleep in the morning, so you wake up from death and step into God's uh, presence, and it will be eternal uh, day. Their forms, he says, will decay in the grave, that is, those who are not upright, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my soul from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Remember the story of Enoch in the Old Testament? He was walking with God, and uh, the Old Testament writer says, God, what? Took him. Same verb, exactly. He didn't have to die. God took him from... From this life to the next, gave him his redeemed body, he took him. Uh, there's a similar statement in Psalm 73. Again, he's uh, contrasting his uh, destiny with those that, uh, that are godless. And he says in verse 23, I am, in contrast to them, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Uh, you, the verb is past, you, in its tense. You took me in the past by my right hand. That's a reference to God's uh, call to him. God took him alongside. You are guiding me. The verb is present. You, you are guiding me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. I... I have you on earth, that's all I need. When I get to heaven, you'll be there. Uh, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. How long? Forever. See. So here you have a number of very clear references to life after death. And this is what David is alluding to back in Psalm 103. He says, not only does God free me from the guilt of the present, not only does he heal me from the, uh, from the afflictions of my soul, but uh, what I have to look forward to is, is life, resurrection from the dead. And, and therefore, there's nothing to fear. Uh, we don't, as Christians, don't have to fear death. Death is just a transition from this life into the next. There's nothing to dread. It's something to look forward to. Um, it's just a, just a very natural step. From one relationship to Christ to one that is even more intense and more meaningful. I was speaking to the salt company last Saturday night and I, uh, last Sunday night, and uh, I wanted to make reference to uh, the the skulls that monks used to keep in their uh, in their cells during the medieval period. And I knew there was an inscription on the skull, and as I told them some time before, I'd gone to the library to try to find that inscription because I couldn't remember what it was. I knew they had written some Latin saying on the brow of the skull and they kept that right on their, their desk, their study desk and I couldn't, uh, couldn't remember what it was so I went down and talked to the librarian and 
She looked all over for me. Finally came up with the inscription and brought it back to me on a piece of paper. Uh, Memento Mori, remember death. And I thought, oh, yeah, that, I said, that's, oh, that's great. That's what I've been looking for. Thank you. Remember death. And this lady looked at me like I had lost my mind. <laughs> and uh, it's obvious that she didn't, uh, she, she really did not have the perspective on, on death that, that we Christians have. And you see, that's what David calls us to remember. Nothing to fear. Uh, God will redeem us from the grave. And he will crown us with compassion and love. That's a reference to our exaltation. I think that's what Paul is thinking about when he says at the end of his life, I finished the course. He doesn't say he's finished. He just says, I finished the course. And now there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which God will give to all those who love him. I think he had in mind this crowning. Uh, The time when we step into God's presence and our Lord says, uh, all right, way to go. You ran well. Uh, you're a faithful servant. And uh, we, we receive uh, whatever that symbol of a crown of righteousness uh, communicates. Uh, the, his acceptance. His exaltation. Now, finally, the fifth benefit, David says, is satisfaction. Verse 5. He satisfies my desires, my translation says, with good things, so that my youth is renewed like the eagle's. Now, your translation is probably different. Every translation I looked at is different because nobody knows what this word means. It's translated desires here. The, um, the New International Version took the Greek translation, the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, and gave it the meaning that the Greek uh, translators used because they didn't know either what it meant. It's a very strange word. But I, I have it on the, uh, the uh, authority of a of a Hebrew scholar that uh, uh, who's a friend of mine back on the West Coast, that this this word means old age. It, it's very much like the Hebrew word for continuity or duration, and it almost certainly means old age. So that what David is saying is that God satisfies me in my old age. That's what the Old Testament calls good old days. You know, you... you you, you can have evil old days. You can, you can grow to be a mean, irascible, difficult, cranky, hard-to-get-along-with uh, elderly person in your dotage. Or you, you can be gracious and you can become more and more sweet and gentle and kind. It all depends upon your perspective, see? If you center your life on God, the results will be greater and greater grace. You'll, you won't grow old and cranky. You'll just become more gracious. And life will become increasingly more meaningful to you. You'll be satisfied with life. You won't uh, look back on your life with regret and with feelings of doubt and, uh, and guilt, but you'll be satisfied. Uh, Lord Byron described his, uh, the final years of his life in this way. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flower and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. In contrast, Elizabeth Barrett said, Come grow old with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first is made. The only difference is uh, Elizabeth Barrett knew God. And Lord Byron did not. That's the only difference. And, and when we center our life upon God, even though, the, as Paul puts it, the outward man perishes, 
The inward man is renewed day by day. And he, as, as the psalmist puts it, he, uh, he revives me like an eagle. He renews my strength like an eagle. I uh, occasionally have gone down to the birds of prey area and with my binoculars, and I just lay out on my back and watch those, those majestic eagles fly, you know, those thermals. They just go out, clear out of sight without flapping once. And they, they're tireless. And uh, in the Old Testament are emblematic of, of a life that's constantly being renewed. So you see what David is saying? He's, he's gathering together all the benefits of knowing God. A guilt-free life. He forgives us all of our sins. He heals us in the inner man, the inner woman. And uh, he takes away the sting of death. And he gives me a, a destiny to look forward to when I stand before the Lord and he crowns me for all of my efforts. And in the meantime, as I grow older, there is the possibility of being satisfied and becoming even more gracious and, and more of an example of, of, God's, of God's grace because he renews the inner man day by day. My father, who is 88, uh, is a good example of this principle. He, he's fond of saying that if the Lord should come while he's still alive, they're going to have to shoot him because he's having too much fun. He doesn't want to go yet. And uh, he, he understands what it is to, to go from, from strength to strength. Now, uh, my time is almost gone, but let me read through the, last, uh, through the rest of the psalm and make a comment or two. Uh, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. See, he turns from his soul now to address his readers, those that are within hearing of this psalm. Not only is it true of of himself, but all those that have been wrong. The word for oppressed here means those that have been wrong, those that, uh, to whom injustice has been done. And that, that fits many of you here, perhaps most of you or all of you. Somewhere during your life, someone did you wrong. Perhaps a spouse or your parents or an employer or an employee, or, and they stole your money or they stole your love or they took away your reputation or your pride or any number of things may have happened. You, to any and all of you, but regardless of whether or not you've been wronged, David says the Lord works righteousness and justice for all those that are wronged. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. And, and at least in my Bible, there's a colon after the word Israel, indicating that what follows is a definition of his ways to Israel. And uh, the translators are right. The way that he revealed to Moses is the verse that's, that follows, actually several verses that follow. This is almost a direct quotation from Moses, from Exodus 34, 6. This is what God revealed to Moses. This is his way. This is the way he is. That's the point. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Do you know when these words were written? Within hours of the building of the golden calf. Uh, the, Moses came down from the mountain having met with God and he discovered that while he was gone in, in his absence they had built a, a, a golden calf to worship. And Moses destroyed the calf and God almost destroyed the people and Moses interceded for their on their behalf and, and after it was all over you have this great revelation of the character of God. You know, what, you, what you see is the inconsistency of Israel but the constancy of God and the relentlessness of his love. Even if Israel is unfaithful, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, 
The word for compassionate here is taken from the Hebrew word for womb and it's descriptive of, of mother and, and father love. Later in verse 13, he uses the same, uh, the same word in referring to, a, to father love. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He's like a, like a father who cares, who knows, who loves. My father used to tell me about one time my sister came into his office. He was had a study at home, and she was fooling around, distracting him, keeping him from getting work done. Finally, uh, she slammed the door and she a uh, drawer, and she slammed it on her fingers, and she let out a scream, and and that was the sort of the crowning uh, indignity. And he gave her a whack on the seat and sent her out of the room, told her to stop bothering him. He's trying to get work done. And she went up to her room and started crying. And my mother came in. And, she said, what's the matter? And, and my sister told her. And, and uh, my mother said, well, let me see your hand. I didn't see anything wrong with it. And she said, oh, no, it's, it's not my hand. It's that, that, that father didn't say, oh, when I smashed my finger. And uh, that, that, that's what David is telling us. God says, oh, when you hurt. He, he cares. He knows. And he cares. And he understands. And his father's heart goes out to us. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. doesn't bear grudges. doesn't hold things against us when we're not together, when we don't act in appropriate ways. He may have to accuse, as he did with David the time that Nathan came into David's throne room. and David had just, uh, he had just stolen another, another woman's wife, another man's wife, and murdered her husband. And he thought he was home free. Covered his tracks. Nathan came in. He said, David, I have a story I want to tell you. Tell the story about a little lamb that belonged to a man. It was his pet lamb. And his neighbor had a, a lot of sheep, great flock of sheep. And, but he took his neighbor's lamb, his pet lamb, and, and slaughtered it for a, a dinner party. And David was just outraged. He just came off of his, his throne in a high huff. And he said, the man deserves to die. Sort of an overreaction because... Uh, sheep napping was not a capital crime, and according to Moses' law, nevertheless, he, you know, he was indignant. So the man deserves to die, and, and, and Nathan said to David, David, you're the man. And David's knees buckled, and he, he put his face in his hands, and he said, I have, I have sinned against God. And Nathan said, you won't die. See, God doesn't keep on accusing. He may put the finger on us. But he doesn't keep it there. He doesn't go around grumpy and mad because ten years ago you did something that, that transgressed his will. He forgives and forgets. As he says, as high, verse, verse uh, 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. He's Immeasurable distances are indicative of his immeasurable love. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. His, his intimate, uh, a father's intimate love for his children is analogous to, to our father's love for us. Four, and this is the reason why he's so kind. He knows how we're formed. He remembers that we're dust. He recalls that back in the beginning he scraped together a little bit of clay and, and made a man out of it, breathed life into it, and it became a human being. 
He remembers that. That's all we are. Uh, about, uh, I don't know, maybe with inflation, a couple of dollars worth of uh, chemical uh, elements, compounds. And that, that's really all we are. What makes us valuable is the life of God in us. And, and he knows what we're like. He knows that no one's, as a friend of mine says, is made out of super dust. We're, we're all just made out of dust. I remember a story a little boy heard the Genesis account of man being made from the dust of the earth and he looked under his bed one day and he saw some dust uh, rolls under his bed ran downstairs to her mother and said mother there's a man under my bed but I can't tell whether he's coming or going <laughs> but that is some some indication of the measure of our transience we're just dust he says we are dust and we are like grass as for man his days are like grass he flourishes like the flower of the field the wind blows over him. Uh, most translations say it, but this is a reference back to the man. The wind blows over him, and he is gone, and his place remembers him no more. He is forgotten. And we think we make such an impact upon our times. And 50 years later, we're forgotten, by and large. You wander through these old cemeteries in the hills, and you realize that there's a story behind every one of those tombstones but most of those graves are, are neglected and no one cares anymore because they're forgotten. It's contrasting the transiency of, of our life, the temporality of it, with God's ongoing, consistent, eternal, relentless love. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. He called us from the beginning, from the foundation of, of the earth, so we can reign with him forever. That's, that's some measure of the extent of God's love, from eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, is his love. He never quits, keeps on going, never stops loving us, regardless of what we do or how badly we perform or behave keeps on loving us. And we read those last uh, few verses, verse 18, and we say, oh me, that, that's what I was afraid of. You have to hang on somehow. You have to keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. And I don't do very well there. You must not love me very much because I don't obey too well. But we haven't read uh, the good news. Verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. You see that? That's where you begin. I think we've lost something by relegating to the, the old days this term God-fearing because I think that's one of the best ways to describe our relationship to God. Now, by fear, he doesn't mean uh, anxiety or terror. This means awe. Those who are in awe of God, those who worship him in spirit and truth, those who are devoted to him, those who open up their lives to him, who center their lives upon him, it's uh, out of that source, Jesus said, rivers of living water shall flow. That's how you get around to obeying his, his precepts. It's by, by centering your life on him. That's, that's how you, you hang on, by getting closer to the, to the center, by being devoted to him, you see. Uh, many people think that the Old Testament is just law and the New Testament is grace, but that's not so. The Old Testament is grace from beginning to end. The law is 
given in Exodus 20, and, and then the elaboration of the law follows. In Exodus 19, you have what what someone has called Moses' eagle wing speech, in which he describes God's actions like a mother eagle bearing up Israel. Here they were trying to make their first steps in statehood, and they were stumbling and falling down and making all kinds of mistakes and griping and complaining and moaning and wanting to go back to Egypt. And uh, they're sort of like a mother eagle who just, you know, shakes off her, her chicks, and they go flapping through the air, and they don't have enough strength to, in their little wings to fly, and, and you know, they're going to crash, and she swoops underneath and picks her up. That's, they tell me, that's how eagles teach their eaglets to fly. And, and Moses says, don't you remember that that's the way God has been dealing with you from the, from the passage over the Red Sea all the way to Sinai? He was just like a mother eagle. He bore you up on eagle's wings. Now... Now, because you have that kind of grace, you have that kind of forgiveness, you have that kind of enablement, here's what pleases him. So he's not saying we have to grit our teeth and clench our jaw and decide we're going to go out and do better. It's, it's simply a matter of getting closer to the center, worshiping him. And as a matter of fact, he says not only should we worship, but all of creation. Verse 20, praise the Lord, you his angels, you, who, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, that is, the sun and moon, stars, you, his servants, who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. And praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Even though we may not obey as well as the sun and the moon and the stars and the angels and the rest of God's creation, who always do his will, who always submit to his dominion, Nevertheless, let's, let's praise him. Father, we do give you thanks. We do praise you and kneel before you and worship in praise and adoration for all that you've done for us. Thank you for all the benefits of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.